Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Professor Mark Addis, and I'm Professor of Philosophy at Birmingham City University. And I'm also a research associate at the Centre for the Philosophy of Natural and Social Science. Now, this evening's public lecture is very kindly supported by the, by the Centre for the Philosophy of Natural and Social Science. The Centre has had a long tradition of doing interdisciplinary work in the philosophy of science in both the areas of natural and social science and also its wider implications to social and political issues. Now, I'm very pleased to welcome to the LSE today Professor Margaret Bolden, who is Research Professor of Cognitive Science at Sussex University. There are some people who are so well-known they don't really need introduction, an introduction, and Professor Bowden is one of those. But um, for the sake of form, I shall say a few words about her. A former student of medicine, philosophy and social psychology, Margaret Bowden has had a long and distinguished career in researching cognition in humans, animals and machines. Her many honours include Fellowship of the British Academy, Membership of the Academia Europeana, um, being on the Council of the Royal Institute of Philosophy, receiving an SCD from Cambridge and three honorary doctorates. Tonight she's going to be talking about materiality and computer art, and what the lecture will be doing is raising philosophical issues about computer art, including questions about whether computer artworks can be physical objects, and perhaps more pressingly importantly, whether works of computer art are really art. For some practicalities, for anyone who's tweeting tonight, for Twitter users in the audience, today's hashtag is LSE Borden. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. This evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be subject to be made of as a po available a podcast, assuming there are no technical difficulties. That concludes my introduction, so with great pleasure I'd like to hand over to Professor Bolden. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Well, hello, everybody. Um, I'm very glad to be here. I haven't been to LSE for ages, actually. I used to come quite a lot, but I just haven't been for a while, so I'm very glad to be back. Um, I have an apology, which is that uh, I am not of the generation who finds gizmos easy to deal with, so I don't actually have any slides or PowerPoints or anything like that, which is a pity in a way, of course, because I'm going to be talking about visual art. But I'd like to st you to start out by conjuring up two images in your own mind. Uh, one, an image of Francis Bacon's studio, which you've probably all seen those pictures uh, that were taken after he died. I mean, if you haven't, just imagine a very, very mess, very messy artist studio, painter's studio. That's one image. The other image, imagine somebody sitting at a computer desk, sitting in front of the screen, perhaps a very, very tidy uh, computer desk, though... Uh, certainly no mud, no, no mess in the sense that you find in Francis Bacon's studio. And just think about that contrast and bear that in mind occasionally because it's going to be, if you like, running through the thread of what I'm going to be, going to be saying. Okay, well, 
The title of the talk is Materiality and Computer Art. And it starts out from the idea that, you know, in traditional visual art, and for that matter in the plastic arts, in traditional visual art, um, the artwork is a physical thing. It's a material object. It may be a painting. It may be a statue. If it's... um, uh, the plastic art, it may be um, a piece of gold jewellery or a pot, whatever. But it's a physical thing. Um, and in fact, the materiality of it gives the artists an opportunity, which they very often take, to glory in the um, potential of that particular medium. Gold, glass, paint, whatever. Uh, Now, okay, there were some people, for example, Clement Greenberg, who said this is all that visual art in the painting century should be about. It's just about the paint, taking that notion to a very, uh, to an extreme. Um, But even the people who didn't uh, take it to that extreme um, were certainly very much concerned with playing around with the material stuff. And it uh, had a very great uh, importance in forming their style and, and so forth, and forming the responses that people made to the works. Um, so Greenberg didn't question the materiality, he accepted the materiality, he just restricted it to paint. Um, and there's an artist called Carla Block, quite an interesting artist, I think, who who plays around with the notion of materiality. So she makes things that look like metal, In fact, they're made of papier-mâché. Or she makes things which she describes as statues. Now, I might not, you might not. But anyway, she describes them as statues, and they're made of cellophane and toothpaste and various other things. So she is playing around with the notion of materiality, but again, she's not questioning it in the sense she's not rejecting it. Uh, Now, of course, there are um, artists who have rejected it quite vociferously, and I'm thinking of the conceptual artists here, um, who said in general, well, even if there is a material object in our art, which in some cases there is, um, that isn't the point. Uh, The point is an idea. And even if they had, for example, as a, uh, one of my favourite uh, examples of, of conceptual art, um, Walter de Maria's uh, Vertical Earth Kilometre, put an enormous amount of precise engineering effort, and indeed money, into manufacturing a kilometre rod, a perfectly spherical, ab- you know, absolutely perfect and smooth and so forth, kilometre rod, and then buried it. And you can't see it. If you want to go and see it, you go to the place where it is, and there's a little plaque. And instead of having a blue plaque on the wall of a house, you know, Joe Bloggs lived here, there's a little plaque in the grass saying, you know, De Maria's Kilometer Rod is, is under here, but you can't see it. And there are lots of other uh, examples of that sort of thing in conceptual art. So the notion that a work of art need not be a material thing. There need be no material thing, actually. Um, And if there is, that that it isn't the point. Um, That isn't a new one. Now, so if you decide, I mean, you may not, this is what we're going to talk about, but if you decide that computer art, or at least certainly some examples of of computer art, um, aren't 
material things, um, it wouldn't follow that they're not works of art if you are prepared in principle to accept conceptual art as art. Now, if you're not, if you have arguments to say, well, conceptual art in general, you are not prepared to accept as art, that's another matter. But if you are prepared to accept conceptual art as art, then you couldn't take immateriality, if you found it, in, in computer art, as a reason for saying that it's not really art. Okay? Um, so... Let, let's look at some examples. And I just want to say before I begin properly, Hockney is not a computer artist in the sense that I'm talking about it, in the sense which I think is interesting. Hockney is an artist who recently has been using computers to help him make his art. He's been using Photoshop, for example. Um, but it's Hockney who's doing everything. Uh, all the decisions, all the important decisions about the design, about the colorways and so forth, are made uh, absolutely deliberately and consciously by Hockney himself. And the computer is just like, a, you know, an animated, rather more powerful paintbrush. And it doesn't raise any philosophical problems, as far as I can see, about whether or not it's art. Um, and whether you value it uh, is another matter but whether it's art I think it just doesn't the question doesn't arise clearly it, it, it's art in a very familiar sense there are no problems there at all I think it's a different matter where you've got generative art that is to say where you've got art which to a very large extent and in some cases 100 percent Anyway, to a very large extent, is generated not by the human artist directly, but by the computer program that the artist has written or has directed if he's got somebody else to do the coding for him. And there, where you ha there are lots of different examples of this, and I'll try and bring out s some distinctions here. There are lots of different sorts of computer art, but the more that the uh, the more that the generative art is generated by the computer, standing alone, so to speak, um, I think the less uh, one might be willing to say that it's really art, and and. Um, so those issues will come up, but they intersect with the issue of materiality, which I've talked about. Now, I'm talking about visual art here. I'm not talking about music. There are different issues with music, both in the you know, traditional sense of music. What is the work of art with music? Is it the performance or is it the score um, and all the Nelson Goodman stuff and so on? Um, Similarly, with computer art, some computer art um, in, involves music and generation of music, and there are um, similar sorts of questions that arise with that. But I'm not thinking about uh, computer music at the moment. I'm thinking about uh, visual computer art. Um, and in the case of visual computer art, there is some... Well, there is something which you can see. It's a physical... If it's on a screen, a computer screen, I suppose you'd want to say it was a physical phenomenon. I don't know you'd want to say it was a material thing or a material stuff. Um... 
but there may be something visual um, on a screen, or it may there may be an image projected onto a wall, uh, where again the wall is a physical thing, but. Um, I don't know what one would want to call the image a material thing or material stuff. There seems to be, um, you know, not the right way of thinking about it at all. But, of course, in many cases, there is something really highly comparable to a traditional painting. There is, there may be a print. The computer may produce a print which is hung on the wall and which is intended to be hung on the wall. And the idea is to produce prints which are aesthetically attractive in one way or another, aesthetically interesting in one way or another, and hang them on the wall. Um, in some cases, um, it isn't even uh, printing you know, from the computer and the, and, the, and the gizmos, that the computer is linked up with some device which actually uses real paint and either brushes or, uh, if you like, painting pads of different sizes, uh, which um, are the equivalent to brushes of different sizes... And the the computer in that case will perhaps you know, choose the colours, choose the um, the mixtures of colours to make up the different uh, mixed colours going to be used on the uh, painting. And the computer program directs the use of the brushes or the paint pads in order to um, make this happen. And of course, in that case, it is possible. In that sort of case, it is possible to get a result which has some sort of um, three-dimensional structure. It isn't completely flat like a computer print is. And um, if any of you um, know this area, I'm thinking here, for example, of Harold Cohen, work done by Harold Cohen. Um, now, some of his uh, work, in fact the most recent work, is printed out in colour and all the colours are, are chosen um, by the computer, obviously in a programme that Harold has written. Um, but, and he had a, um, an exhibition, a solo exhibition, oh I don't know, a couple of years ago in London, um, and a friend of mine who is uh, an art historian um, and also a great friend of Harold's and who knows the stuff well, um, he was complaining that although the um, images, although he found them visually attractive and interesting up to a point, he was very much put off by the fact that they were completely flat because they were, they were printed and not, not painted. Um, now, it's not that you couldn't have... Um, brush strokes in a computer generated work you could in principle and you could use 3D printing to do it um, I don't know of any 
example of generative art where artworks are being produced by the computer which are using 3D printing to represent brushstrokes. I'm not saying there isn't one but I never heard of one but there certainly is at least one project uh, to copy, to use 3D printing to copy the brushstrokes on paintings. For example in the Netherlands I think there's there's one such project on a um, working on a Rembrandt, a very famous Rembrandt painting, I forget which one and another one working on a Van Gogh painting and they're using 3D printing to see whether or not you know, they can actually get um, if you like a better forgery um, than could be done without it but that's a very different matter of course copying something that already exists is a very different matter from generating it um, but in principle in principle it could be done so um, not only are there many examples of computer art that certainly look like that certainly are material things and look very like the sorts of material things that we're accustomed to see in art galleries and so on um, but some of them uh, have effects actually which you can't um, you can't achieve on screen and vice versa I mean the, 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 the um, nature of the light is different so that for certain sorts of colours you can only get um, on a screen other sorts of colours you can o you can only get off the screen you know um, different sorts of light different physical processes um, now I've spoken so far as though what the computer artists here are interested in is producing visually interesting beautiful arresting uh, objects as we are used to see in, in, in traditional art and there are many such examples but there are other examples of computer artists who either are not trying to do that at all or like the conceptual artists that I mentioned or some of them insofar as they are doing it that isn't the real point uh, for example, um, a lot of computer uh, art is interactive. In other words, the artwork, the image, let's assume we're talking about images here, we're not talking about music at the moment. The, the image depends not only on what the program is generating by itself, so to speak, but on the interaction between things that the viewer does the person standing in front of the artwork um, and, and what the computer does. So in other words, the computer has some way of sensing certain things that the person is doing. Now, it may be something like breathing or it may be something like raising a left arm or raising a right arm or it may be sound, uh, hearing the person say something. Um, and those actions on the part of the person standing in front of the screen affect what you actually see on the screen and in some cases um, that interaction is what the artist the computer artist is primarily interested in that if you like is the artwork that interaction um, now I mean there are some very um, 
interesting, I think, examples of computer art, which is interactive, but where that really, it doesn't seem to be the main point. And one example was shown in the uh, in the dome at the Millennium when they had, you remember when the dome was opened at the Millennium and they had uh, um, exhibition there of all sorts of things. Well, in the Times, and I forget now whether it was the Times art uh, Reporter, or just a general feature somebody sent along to look at the dome. I don't remember. But anyway, somebody in the, in the Times, this is not a letter, this is a feature, you know, in the Times, reporting on the, his experience in the dome, he said the best thing in the dome um, was the starfish, Dan Brown's starfish. And what this was, um, and it was apparently hugely popular, what this was was a round table made of, sort of some sort of translucent marble, and inside it was trapped a very large, multicoloured starfish, um, and very multicoloured, you know, lots of sort of knobs on the starfish, with very, very large starfish that more or less filled the table, and lots of different colours on the, the dots on the skin and so on and so forth. OK, so you go up to the table and you look at it, and that's what you see. And then maybe you cough, and the thing moves. And it moves in a lifelike way. And then you cough again, and it moves again. And you and this, and you realise that it's responding to you, and you move towards it, and it moves again. If you suddenly lunge towards it and shout "Hello," it freezes. And uh, you know, the illusion, the visual illusion, is so great. A, this thing is alive. B, that it is, it is responding in a sort of familiar, sort of intelligible way to you. And C, um, it's moving around in this way, apparently freely, inside mar a solid marble. I mean, how can this be? Well, to cut a long story short, of course, all of that was illusion. What was happening was, um, it, it actually, it was an image being projected down from the ceiling onto the table. And the image was being generated continuously by a neural network which was picking up uh, visual and auditory signals from the, uh, from the audience. And that was determining whether or not the thing moved and how it moved and, and so on and so forth. Um, and I would say that in that case, the artist concerned was if you like, producing um, an interesting trick and a visually arresting piece, but he wasn't primarily interested, really, in exploring the possibilities of the interaction, the dynamic possibilities of the interaction. That isn't actually what he was doing. But in some other cases of interactive art, that is what the uh, artist in his own mind is doing. And an example here is a man called Ernest Edmonds, who was one of the very, very first um, computer artists and um, now uh, internationally famous and very well respected. Um, so much so that uh, he received an invitation a few years ago, which I'll tell you about later, which I think is a very great compliment. Um, he has always had a fascination for colours. So most of his pieces, not quite all, most of his pieces are 
working with with colours and very often the sort of you know pure colours. In other words, he's not producing representational uh, images of people or flowers or mountains or anything like that. Uh, it's just just very often just stripes of colour changing, but the stripes change depending upon the interactions with the audience. And now, although. It's very important to Ernest Edmonds that there, that these changes are happening. The work of art in his mind is the system the inter, of interactions between, uh, if you like, the human being and the computer-generated images. What he's really interested in is the logical structure of that, the mathematical structure of that. And he is, if we want to talk about sort of glorying in the medium, he is glorying in the medium of mathematical possibilities which the computer offers him, uh, even though he knows perfectly well that the audience um, aren't glorying in that because they don't understand it. They may not even realize that it's there, that's for a start, because um, in his versions of uh, um, interactive art, the most recent ones at least, um, the interaction is delayed. So if you, you will do something uh, which will have some effect on, on the image that you see, but it won't have an effect until some, several seconds later, or perhaps even longer than seconds, a couple of minutes perhaps. And so you're not going to pick it up. You're not going to realize it. If you do happen to realize, or maybe he tells you, maybe the, the program, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the gallery tells you this is an interactive work and you realize that there is some interaction there, you can't, in this particular case, you can't work out the logic of it. It's just too complicated. Um, and that, that, that's deliberate on Ernest Edmund's part. Now, whether or not you think that that is something which is a valuable thing to try to do in art which is um, shown to the public is another matter, and one could have, um, you know, one could have a debate about that. Um, but certainly he is exploring a set of mathematical possibilities which involves the action of the audience, but which the audience is not actually able to fathom. And in, actually, in his very, very earliest work, many, many, many years ago, he produced um, a three-dimensional... Uh, well, it, it looked like a, a painting, except that it was three-dimensional in the sense that it had um, a number of three-dimensional things sort of sticking out of the painting. Uh, well, the paint is sticking out of the board, and it wasn't just a painting. Um, personally, I mean, I, I think it's a very interesting and um, beautiful thing. But actually, it was based on um, a logical system, because Ernest Edmonds is also a very creative computer scientist. Actually, he, he designed the first logic programming language uh, many, many, many years ago. Um, it was based on a logical system 
which he did actually put on the wall. He put the, ru- the rules, the logical rules up on the wall. Um, but again, there was no way that you would realise that from looking at it. And even if you looked at it and then looked at the logical rules on the wall, uh, you probably wouldn't be able to, to see the point. So the extent to which there is a sharing of what the artist regards as the relevant experience of the artwork, you know, the extent to which there's a sharing of that with the audience may be very, very little. Or, of course, it it may be very great. Take another example, a man called John McCormack, um, most of whose art is um, done by evolutionary programming. In other words, he... um, And William Latham, if anybody's come across William Latham two very different artists, but both using the same sort of method, and to put it in a nutshell, um, they write a program which will produce an image, a certain image, and then they, the program also has rules in it, uh, so-called genetic algorithms, which can make changes, mutations in those image-generating image rules. Um, and so there may be, I don't know, 16 or 100 at a particular stage, at a particular generation. And then somebody or other, um, either the artist or possibly you, if you're in the art gallery where this stuff is shown, you choose a couple of those to be the parents of the next generation, right? and then mutation happens again, and so on and so on and so on. In other words, the uh, image is changing continuously, And you can see that it's changing continuously. And in some cases, though not all, um, you are able to affect it in in ways that you intend. So, for example, you may be able to decide that you want a certain sort of effect. The simplest case would be a certain set of range of colors. You may decide that you want a particular range of colours in the thing, um, and you can choose the parents. Once you get a mutation that gives you something with that range of colours, you try to grab onto it and make it breed the next generation, etc., 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 and up to a point that you can do this. The trouble is with evolutionary programmes, because the um, mutations are random, uh, it's very limited the extent to which you can actually do this, because... um, uh, you know, you may have got the thing to come up with um, green and blue images, and suddenly it goes back again to yellow and orange, which you didn't want, um, because of a random mutation. Now, in the case of William Latham, um, whose images you may have have seen, they're very, They're absolutely recognisable. You can recognise a William Latham, but they look rather like sort of very, very highly coloured, brightly coloured, three-dimensional creepy crawlies. He actually trained as a sculptor um, at the uh, at Samantha's. He trained as a sculptor, and he's interested in 3D shapes. So although he isn't making them in 3D yet, although possibly he may in future, they look as though they're 3D on the screen but they're recognisable because he doesn't allow the mutations to be very deep ones so he doesn't allow the style to be changed deeply Um, so on the one hand that makes it less interesting, less surprising uh, but it also of course makes it um, less interesting if what you want to do is explore the potential of that particular style 
um, which he does. So, again, what you're going to regard as the work of art and what you're going to regard as the experience of the work of art uh, varies hugely, sometimes involving specific physical things like prints hung on the wall or images projected on the wall or kept onto the computer screen. Uh, sometimes, at least in the mind of the artist, it's just a question of um, reveling in the combinatorial and structural possibilities that a particular uh, program will give you, um, and the visual, if you like, implementation of that isn't really the main point. Now, you might say, well... There are all sorts of reasons, you know, why this, they, they, or many, of, not all of these things are art. You might want to say not any of them are art, because you might want to say, and many people do, that in principle, an art object or a work of art um, is something which is either built in some way by a human being and expresses some sort of communication from one human being to the other, from the artist to the audience. Or at the very least, you might want to say, it's something which the artist directly informs you of, points you to, and asks you to consider uh, as something of interest. And if that communication works then you accept it as a piece of art. Now, the sort of example I'm thinking of there is the um, conceptual artist, uh, I think it's fourth, the 47th parallel, I think it was 47th or 43rd parallel, um, and uh, he, he said he got people to send letters through the New York postal system um, all ending up on that particular latitude. And the work of art, so he tells us, I mean, as I say, whether one accepts this is, is quite another matter, but he would say the work of art was the activity of the U.S. postal system. But he wasn't saying the, the, the U.S. postal system is, is continuously all the time um, producing a work of art, it was only doing it when he arranged for people to set to post these things and other people to accept them and so on and so forth. And so um, that was the work of art. But, uh, but at least there, you know, there is a human being saying, look at this. Now, you may, you may look at it, you may not. But there's a human being saying, look at it, look at this specific thing. And, of course, in the case of computer-generated art, there isn't. And some people, and I've seen this happen on many occasions, some people, no matter how impressive, beautiful, interesting, arresting a visual image may be, it may be so... Uh, Valuable in that sense. I don't want to say beautiful because I mean some of them are beautiful, but some of them aren't, and it doesn't have to be beautiful to be a work of art after all. Um, that some of these things are so arresting that a person will spontaneously say, "Oh, I like that. Who did that?" And when you tell them well, it was done by a computer program, 
They're not, they don't just say, oh, well, that's a surprise. Oh, well, you know. No, they say, oh, well, in that case, no, I'm not interested. It's not beautiful. It's not interesting. Um, now, it seems to me that that is a, a, a really irrational response. Um, because, of course, the program didn't come out of nowhere. The program was written by some human being, namely the human computer artist, with the intention, among other things, that it would have that sort of result and with the um, intention that you would find that result um, of aesthetic interest. So, um, personally, I don't think that that is um, a good enough reason for saying that no computer art can be art. It's not real art. Although um, there may very well be a lot of people in this room who disagree with me there, because I mean a lot of people do. But my view is that uh, they're mistaken to take that approach. And I said right at the beginning that to say that certain sorts of computer art aren't really art because they don't involve a material object as the result, as the work of art, I've already said... If, certainly if you're prepared to take computer art, ser uh, conceptual art seriously, then I don't think you can say that. Um, and there are many, many um, similarities and continuities between the various sorts of computer art and more traditional forms. And I just want to, to end on that note. I said earlier on that Ernest Edmonds... Um, one of the very first computer artists is now you know, very well known and, and so on. And I also said that um, he was uh, obsessed by colour. Now, a few years ago, uh, I think it was 2007, something like that, um, it was the 60th anniversary of the Colourfield painters, you know, Rothko and co. And the Colourfield painters actually were based in Washington, D.C. Um, they weren't based in New York. Um, and Washington, D.C. decided that they would have an exhibition, a sort of citywide exhibition, to um, commemorate these people, not least because uh, they knew perfectly well that, that most people think of you know, American art, particularly art in the sort of 60s, that sort of area, as be, that sort of time, as being um, based in New York, which, of course, much of it was in the expressionists were, but these people were not, and so Washington, D.C., if you like, was sort of cocking a snook at New York and having this very high-profile exhibition. Okay, so what did they do? Well, they did what you would expect them to do uh, in a normal, that sort of normal commemorative exhibition. They got hold of as many, <clears throat> excuse me, as many canvases of these painters as they could. Uh, they borrowed them from uh, art galleries, they borrowed them from private collectors um, and they exhibited them uh, and there was more than one gallery involved well fine so what you may be thinking well in that exhibition they included just two contemporary works And I've asked Ernest many times if he can find out you know, what the other one was, because I don't know what the second one was, but one of the two contemporary works that they included was one of Ernest's interactive colour works. And the point I'm making here is that the people who chose 
what to put in this exhibition were not computer curators. They weren't specialists in computer art. They were just ordinary art curators. Yes, they were specialists in modern art. They weren't specialists in Leonardo. But they were just, you know, dealing with traditional art and, of course, the Colourfield painters, all of the, the uh, paintings that they gathered together for this uh, exhibition were would have been accepted as, as uh, art by anybody um, familiar with traditional art. But they chose to put Ernest's work in there. Now, why? They said, and, I mean, it seems to make, make sense to me, they said that it seemed to them that... In Ernest's work, or not all of it perhaps, but certainly in that one, Ernest is concerned with the sorts of issues that the Colourfield painters were concerned with. He was concerned with the sorts of issues around colour and the interaction of colour and so forth, which they were. Um, and they even felt that if those people had still been alive and had the technology available, they probably would have been experimenting with that in much the same way. Um, so they felt that it, it fitted. And they felt, and they were perfectly happy to put it alongside, I mean literally alongside, paintings by Rothko and, uh, and the others. So they clearly regarded it as art, I think somebody who wants to argue that it just is not and cannot be art is going to have a, a difficulty, I think, in explaining that fact, that historical event. You know, were these people, the curators, I mean, were these people, um, you know, completely uh, crazy? Were they acting um, in a way which was completely out of sync with the sorts of criteria that they normally used for judging art and for picking works of art to be included in a certain exhibition? Um, if you say, or if anyone says, that no computer art can genuinely be art, then you have to say, yes, these, these curators were deeply misled. Uh, they were completely misled, and uh, that part of their exhibition was, well, perhaps not a fraud, but certainly uh, highly misleading and a mistake. Um, and I think that's quite a difficult thing to say. So in sum, it seems to me that uh, there are no really good, strong reasons for saying that in general, in principle, computer art can't be real art. But there are differences and similarities and continuities. There are differences between um, computer art and traditional visual art. And as I've tried to suggest, there are differences also between different sorts of computer art. Um, and materiality is sometimes involved and, and sometimes it isn't. And so what one needs to do, I think, is to look at particular examples of types of computer art and argue about those and talk about the similarities and differences there rather than trying to come to some general position that in general uh, all of these um, so-called artworks aren't really artworks and can't be artworks because I don't think that that is actually a sustainable position. Thank you.
Thank you very much. I'd now like to open up um, the floor for questions. If you give your name and your affiliation, um, someone will come around with a microphone to take your question. Gentleman in the middle, Will. Yeah, my name's Tony Greenfield. I'm long retired. I used to be a professor of medical statistics in Queen's University of Thank you. Yeah, I'm surprised that anyone should waste their time. On sorry, a, I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Is it not switched on? All right. All right. Yeah, I've got you now. I'm surprised that anyone should waste their time on a semantic argument. I mean, you, you've got this principle: is, is computer art art? Does it matter? To, to, I mean, it's such a subjective viewpoint. I mean, we, I belong for many years to the Bakewell photographic circle. Do you know Bakewell? In, in the Peak District. And there we had this argument about whether computerised photography was, was photography, just the same way. And I, as a matter of fact, I was the first person to enter a vision. Well, I'm not holding it right. Oh, I was the first person to enter a, a, an image generated by computer art as, as a piece of art. But it was photography. You know, it, it replaced the photograph. People thought it was a photograph, but when they discovered it was produced by a photograph, by a computer, they, they wouldn't take it. They said, oh, no, we're not going to take that sort of stuff in our, our competitions anymore because we had a weekly, a fortnightly competition. But nowadays, they've dropped all the, uh, the slides as part of uh, the exhibition, uh, the competitions. And they have, um, nowadays, they have computer-generated slides as part of the competition. This was 20 years ago. You know, they've changed. they changed their mind. I'm sure people will carry on with the same ideas in, in, in what you call art, whatever that is. Because you've never really defined it. Well, yes, I mean, I, I very deliberately didn't uh, attempt because uh, to define art as a mugs game, as you know. Um, so I didn't, I didn't want to give a definition of art and say, does it fit that or not? The, uh, the nearest I got to that was saying there are some people... For example, Antony here, I mean, but it's a very common view. I mean, there are many people and um, quite a few uh, philosophers of aesthetics, you know, specialists of aesthetics, who do define art in such a way that they quite explicitly say it involves uh, either the expression of human emotion or some sort of communication between one human being and another and so on and they will not those people i mean uh, uh, here for example i mean i've challenged him on this and he just will not allow um, that this stuff counts of art if you show him an image a particular image and ask him well do you think that that's you would you like to have it on your wall he will say well actually Yes, yes. 
in that sense, I'd like to have it on my wall. I mean, it wouldn't. Uh, I would like to have it visually, but I wouldn't actually be very ready to have it on my wall because it it, it isn't art. It doesn't come from a human being. And when I say, well, of course, it comes from a human being in the sense that the art, the original artist. Um, designed the possibility because he wrote you know, he didn't actually design that image of course the actual specific image of course was produced only by the program and the uh, human artist might not have been able to do it actually interesting we talked about colour um, Harold Cohen who, who I mentioned um, for many, many years was producing black and white line drawings because um, he couldn't write um, a, a program for colour which, which um, satisfied him. And actually, Harold Cohen, as some of you will probably know, um, in the 60s was a very, very well-known and successful young artist in London, so much so that when about 20 years ago they had an exhibition on the 60s at, I think it was in the Barbican, and this exhibition, it wasn't about the 60s art, it was about the 1960s, so it had Mary Quant and George Best and the Beatles, right? And in that exhibition there were two pictures by Harold, right? painted, you know, painted in the usual way by Harold. He was that successful, right? But he gave it all up, turned to computer art in about 1968 because he thought it would help him to understand his own processes better. But anyway, I was talking about colour. Eventually, he did manage to um, come up with, with a version of a programme which did satisfy him in terms of colour. And now um, he will say that the current version of the programme... Um, I mean, I once complimented him on a particular image, and I said, not only is that, you know, the colours in that, Harold, you know, extraordinarily beautiful, but they don't look like you, they're unusual. He said, yes. And he said two things interesting. He said, I wouldn't have had the courage to do that. And he also said, he said, I, Harold Cohen, um, am a first-rate colourist. Aaron, my programme, is a world-class colourist. So if you like, I think of it as the aesthetic equivalent of the uh, program in the 1950s which played drafts and which learnt to play drafts so well that it could beat its programmer. I mean, this thing in some sense has beaten, in his view, has beaten Harold Cohen in the uh, colouring stakes even though he was the one who, who wrote it. So in other words... It isn't the case, of course, that some particular individual human being has deliberately constructed that particular image. That is true. But the philosophers such as are here who want to say that that is enough reason for just rejecting it as art and saying it has no interest in art as art... Um, it seems to me this is irrational. So, I mean, I agree with you. But I can well believe that they said to you, uh, because the computer is involved, you know, we're not going to accept it as a photograph and so on and so forth. I also agree with you that um, people's ideas on this are probably going to, to change as it becomes more and more... Um, 
evident. And as, for example, public art in, um, you know, in public squares, there are quite a lot of, well, not quite a lot, there are some um, public installations around the world of interactive art um, where just walking through the square, you know, you come across these things. Um, there are still... It's still very unusual, though it does happen, but very unusual to have computer art shown in major galleries like the Tate or MoMA. It does happen, but very unusual. Um, and the number of dedicated galleries is, is tiny, is minute. Um, so, yes, I think it will change. Um, but, of course, the trouble with the notion of art is it's so bound up with all sorts of cultural, historical notions, notions of romanticism, for example, where the notion of the human individual artist is absolutely crucial, that it may be that um, insofar as people um, remain um, attached to those sorts of uh, criteria, they won't want to accept it. I mean, we'll see. We'll see, but I agree with you, it can change. Sorry? Fractals. Fractals. Yes. Yet they will not be accepted in the world of art. Yes, well, that's true. I mean, <sighs> that is true, and it may be because in the case of fractals, the generative principle is so clear. You know, it's just the uh, the equation, which may be a very, very, very simple one. I mean, the Mandelbrot set, for example, um, arises from an incredibly simple... I mean, I can't tell you what it is, I don't remember. An incredibly simple sort of algebraic equation, so to, so to speak. And so there's no... Uh, so. And Mandel did, Mandelbrot didn't produce it for what you might call artistic purposes. I mean, he found that it happened, and he thought, wow, this is beautiful, which indeed it is. And, and he showed it, and, and, and people find it interesting. But, but the people that I've been talking about define themselves as artists, which Mandelbrot, of course, didn't. They define themselves as artists, and they find, and it's very frustrating for them, because they find that so many people just will not just will not give any account to their claims of being artists. They won't accept the stuff as art, even if they are forced to agree that it is uh, it, it does fit a certain sorts of aesthetic criteria which they accept. Um, but it's obviously not something which can be proved one way or the other because it depends upon whether or not, for instance, your notion of art includes this business about originating directly from a human being. I mean, that's absolutely crucial here. In, in the corner. Peter Sosu, uh, LSE. Um, can I follow up on this question about fractals? Um, because the some of the examples you spoke about, about computers generating art, um, involve random mutation, whereas um, you can have algorithms that generate fractals that are purely d deterministic. Is that an important distinction in judging between processes that are purely deterministic and processes that involve randomness? Uh, 
No, I don't think it is. And um, at least some of the artists I've been talking about don't think it is either. I don't know. uh, Some may. But certainly um, Ernest Edmonds, for example... Ernest Edmonds, for example, regards uh, randomness as being um, intellectually and aesthetically uninteresting and doesn't depend on it um, for for his work. I mean, he doesn't actually use evolutionary programs. I mean, if he did, if he wanted to use evolutionary programs, of course, there'd have to be some randomness in there. But then he wouldn't. Uh, he would want uh, some. Pretty well defined uh, decision process for choosing at each generation between you know which one was going to the next. So um, now there certainly are computer artists who do depend a lot on randomness, but certainly he, for example, regards that as lazy, intellectually lazy, and of no interest. And it certainly isn't the case that you have to use randomness in order to come up with a program which you can't predict and which produces stuff which you could not, not only could not have uh, painted or drawn yourself, but could not even have imagined, right? Um, And uh, this is very often the case. But, of course, that's just a special case of the notion that, you know, programs in general, you know, they can do all sorts of things you don't expect them to do. If that wasn't the case, there'd be no such thing as a program bug. So, On the right-hand side. (coughs) Thank you. Uh, Michael Shearer, also long-retired philosophy lecturer. Um, there's all sorts of interesting questions about artists using computers in various ways, including the programming and, and other ways. Are we a huge way away from the notion of the computer itself as the artist? Sorry, a huge way away from what? The notion of the computer as the artist. Well... I think we are because even if the computer is using a program which wasn't, strictly speaking, written by a human being, which of course is the case with an evolutionary program that's been running for a while, right? Um, Even in those cases... At the moment, the original program, including the rules for making mutations and for choosing between them, um, was written by a, a human artist. And it's true that in that sort of case, what you actually see, the result, the work of art, if you like, that, that you see at the end... Um, depends uh, absolutely on, if you like, the history of the changes that have happened in the program for which the human artist was not responsible and had no say in it. Um, Although that is true, nonetheless, um, there's a very clear sense in which it goes back 
to um, the artist's original program and intention. And actually, perhaps I should say here, um, it is in principle possible for the decision at each, for the selection at each generation to be made automatically by the program. And in many evolutionary programs, that is indeed the case. For example, people using it for many years have been using evolutionary programs to help them design aircraft engines where it had better be right. And the selection at each generation is made uh, automatically by the program because the physics is understood well enough that the criteria can be built into it, okay? Um, but in the case of um, programs in compu evolutionary programs in computer art, in virtually all cases... The deselection is made by the artist, or, as I said earlier, sometimes by you standing in the gallery and make all these, you know, making the choices. And the re I think there are two reasons for that. The first is, and they're connected, of course. I mean, the first is that it's very, very difficult um, to say for any particular. Um, artistic scale, what the relevant, what all of the relevant um, artistic criteria are. It's actually a little bit easier to say it in music than it is in, well, more than a little bit easier to say it in music than it is in um, uh, a visual art, because the musicologists, partly because the musicologists have been working uh, so hard on it for so many, many, many scores of years, as indeed have the uh, historians of visual art. But music, of course, um, well, is the music, Western music, which is written down, for which there is a score and so forth, can be represented so clearly and different musical styles can be distinguished in manner much more clearly than different visual styles. So the, even the recognition the, in words, even the sort of the verbal recognition of what the criteria are um, is difficult to come to. And even if you think you've come to that, putting that in terms clear enough to be put into the computer program it is another huge, huge problem. So on the one hand, it's very, very difficult to say what the criteria are. And on the other hand, um, many artists, even including, I think, many computer artists, though perhaps not all, wouldn't want their criteria to be um, announced to the world. Um... I mean, that's a very personal thing. Some, pe some people would be perfectly happy about that. Um, others, I think, wouldn't. Um, but until you have got programs which can not only generate things, but evaluate them automatically without relying upon the human being to evaluate them, I wouldn't want to say that the computer is itself really an artist. Now, I mean, uh, there are evaluative criteria built into these things. Um, so, for example, to take Harold Cohen's programs, they will never come up with an unbalanced picture. You know, where there's a lot of stuff up in the top right-hand corner and nothing down here. 
that sort of unbalance. They just it just will never happen because. Uh, at relatively early stages, you know, while the thing is, is running, there are routines put in there, um, processes put in there, which, which uh, ensure that that does not happen. So it's not a question of the thing coming up with lots and lots of images, some of which are unbalanced and some of which aren't, and looking at them and saying, ah, well, that's unbalanced, so we'll put that in the, in the waste paper basket, but this is balanced, that's okay. Because it can't do that. And at the moment, um, again, I don't know of any uh, computer art where that sort of post hoc evaluation can be done by the system itself. It can only be done by the human being. Now, I'm not saying it's in principle impossible, but I'm saying that it would require, I mean, among other things, it would require very, very clear understanding a very clear understanding of what the relevant aesthetic criteria are. Um, and just to give you um, one, I think, as a relevant example, uh, there's an architectural historian, I think his name is Hitchcock or something like that, um, who is... Um, the world, well, certainly was in the 50s, I think 50s, 60s, he wrote a book, and he was regarded as one of the uh, world experts, if not the leading world expert, on Frank Lloyd Wright, the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright. And he wrote a book about Frank Lloyd Wright, and he wrote a, a, a chapter, one whole chapter in that book was about the prairie houses. Um, and there were, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright um, designed, I think it was 42, 43 prairie houses. They're all different from each other, and they're all named by the, you know, the Bloggs House, the Robinson House, and so forth, the clients who, who commissioned them. Um, and they're all different, but they're all of a piece. You know, they're all of the same style. You can see, oh, yes, this is a prairie house. Now, in his chapter, he tried to say what a prairie house is. You know, what is what the principle of unity, he called it. What is the principle of unity of the prairie house? And he couldn't find it. And interestingly, instead of saying, I haven't found it, you know, not bright enough, maybe somebody tomorrow would do it, he said, their principle of unity is occult. Implying, I think, uh, that it's something which nobody could ever state clearly there's something magical about it there's something well uh many years ago um late 70s i think it was or very early 80s um some computer scientists uh, wrote what they called a shape grammar a system of rules for generating um designs for um prairie houses and every it, Every single one of the 42 or 43 houses that Frank Lloyd Wright designed, every single one of those was generated by this system. It also generated a number of others, each of which were regarded by experts in the field as being prairie house-ish. And one of those was actually built for uh, one of these the people involved, and uh, so it's a, an extra prairie house, and not a single design was produced by this thing which was not acceptable as a prairie house. There were no grammatical mistakes, if you like. Now, it seems to me that that shows 
that the principle of unity of a prairie house is not occult. That the principle of unity of a, of a prairie house um, is something which is certainly approximated uh, by this system. And, by the way, it came up with a number of things which were um, surprising. I mean, it, it, it turned out that in this system... Um, the location of the fireplace is hugely important. There are a lot of it's made the decision on the location of a fireplace happens relatively early, and a large number of later decisions, architectural decisions about the structure of the house, depend upon the location of the fireplace. And if you decide, as uh, Frank Lloyd Wright did, I believe, in a, maybe a couple, I mean, very rarely, but there were a couple of cases, two or three cases, where he had more than one fireplace. The, the house had more than one fireplace. And if you look at that, you see a structure, a sort of twin structure. I don't mean they're exactly the same. They don't have to be exactly the same. But you see that where in, an, in most prairie houses there is one sort of focal point, which is um, the fireplace, if you have two of them, then you get a structure which overall looks like a prairie house, but which you can think of also, you can see it as, if you like, two prairie houses, one of them focused on this fireplace, one of them focused on that fireplace. And this was not something, apparently, you know, which had been picked up before by architectural um, historians and so on. Um, so, but that that is the degree of clarity, though, which you need um, in order for the system to come up with these things. And even there, it wasn't a question of, I mean, the system wasn't able to examine itself. It just worked. You know, the, the, the program ran, and as I said, it, it never ran in such a way that it ended up with an unacceptable um, non-prairie house-ish design. But there's no question that it was um, criticizing itself and, and, and putting post doing post hoc evaluation. And I think unless the system is able to do that, I wouldn't want to call it an artist. Um, gentleman in the far corner. Hello, is that okay? Yes. Uh, my apologies, I missed the beginning of your talk, but I wondered if you were using the term materiality in any nuanced way, or is it uh, an, another term for matter, like stuff you can weigh, or that it has projection in the world? And I wondered if um, you could say something about what sort of materiality a programming language would have. Well, a programming language has no materiality. A programming language is an abstract system, abstract mathematical system. But no, I was, uh, no, I wasn't using it. I deliberately didn't give a definition of it, but I, I pointed out that there is a, a sort of skittering between the notion of materiality implying there is a material thing there, something you would call a material thing, like a painting, for example, you would call a material thing. And um, a print 
generated by a computer and produced by a computer and hung on the wall is a material thing. Now, a computer screen, well, the computer screen is a material thing. The image on the computer screen, we wouldn't normally want to call a material thing, but of course it's a physical phenomenon. So if you, if you mean by materiality a physical phenomenon, well then the screen images which are produced by some computer art uh, would count as being material. But I started out right at the beginning by saying that um, in traditional visual art or plastic arts, uh, there is a particular sort of stuff which the artist is working with and exploring the potential of that stuff and in many cases almost deliberately um, glorying in the possibilities of it. I mean, you think, for example, of, I know, jewellers or goldsmiths or, for that matter, potters. I mean, there's the, the different potentialities of clay and, and what you can, the sorts of results you can get just from clay if you, uh, not only if you glaze it in different ways, but if you bake it in the kiln in different ways and so on and so forth. Uh, and, of course, paint also, so, and the pigments you're using. And I was saying, and I, went, I said that because I went on later to say that in the case of computer art, some computer artists, not but some computer artists are quite consciously um, glorying in the potentiality of the computational system that they're working with. Now, they may or may not be trying to share that with the audience. In many cases, they're not because they know that the audience is not going to get it anyway. So they're not. But to them, that is what it's all about. And I even, I didn't mention this before, but I I remember on one occasion uh, um, a young man who does so-called net art, very interested in net art, where what net art is, is a whole load of people. It may be a particular group, you know, it may be sort of 12 people, maybe 2,000 people. Um, communicating on the internet and collaborating in coming up with, with, for example, a piece of music. I mean, here's that, the person I'm thinking of, actually, is, is particularly a musician. And so he's talking about examples of so-called net art, where the final piece of music that results is the result of interactions between many people, sometimes very many people. And he said to me once, the interactions, the existence of these potential interactions feels like a medium to me. Now, I'm working, I think of it, I experience it as working in that medium, sort of abstract medium. I'm not working in stone, I'm not working in sound, well, of course, sounds involved, but but the medium I'm working, I feel that I'm working in, is this the, the the potential of these this sort of interactive network? Now, I mean, I can't say that I really resonate that because I mean, I haven't done it and I don't quite understand it. But it's interesting that he said that. I think so. I was using materiality in a very broad sense, but in order to try and point out some of the differences between. Di- uh, different sorts of computer art which might be called um, material in, in different ways. So, so 
would you say would you say as a rough rule that materiality is something that can be weighed whereas what you're talking about abstract systems uh, are weightless would I say that materiality is something that can be waived yes It sounds to me like, well, you're, you're, like you're talking about matter, so I'm wondering why I use the term materiality. Well, because matter, to me anyway, doesn't suggest immediately the notion of a, what we would call a material thing, whereas materiality does, and in traditional art, visual art and the plastic arts, there always is a material thing which is regarded as the artwork. Now, of course, as I said, the conceptual artists challenge that. They say, and they want to say, you don't need to have a material thing. If you do have a material thing, it doesn't have to be visible, and they deliberately hide it sometimes. Um, and in other cases, they deliberately do not supply a material thing. They say that is not the point. The point is the particular idea, and the ideas vary greatly. And what I said was at that point, if you're someone who has absolutely no sympathy whatsoever for this claim of conceptual art, um, then you might be ready to say at least of some sorts of computer art which don't come up with a sort of physical object you might be ready to say well they aren't art either in much the same way that conceptual art isn't art but if you are prepared to say yes conceptual art is art and then say well I mean that, that I think is good art and that I don't and so forth but yes conceptual art is art um, then the fact that some computer art is in the artist's own mind exploring a very abstract system, and that is the point. It's not just a tool. That's the point for them, or for some people. Um, you couldn't then use that as a reason for saying it isn't really art. Shall we take one final question? There's one over there. So. Thank you. Robin Nansel, LSE. A very quick question. Um, you may just have answered it, but I'm wondering if the distinction that you might want to draw comes down to whether or not there is traceability to some kind of human motivation to undertake a communicative act, and that, therefore, the aesthetic dimension is not the criterion upon which you judge whether something is art or not art. Um, are you asking whether or not communication is essential to art? Is that I didn't, couldn't hear what you Partly were saying. Partly that. My I'm hearing ask, is not good. The first part of what I was asking is whether or not the human motivation to undertake the act at all, whether it's to design the software or computer program or whether it's to undertake an act of conventional art, it's the motivational side. I'm wondering if that is the main distinction that you would draw. I don't, well, I mean, the quick answer would be, you know, yes, there is a huge difference there and it's an important difference and so on. But I think the Surrealists might have said um, motivation 
is not important because if, as they claimed, I'm not saying they're right, I'm just saying this is you know, a view which was put forward, if art is um, the result of the unconscious, um, it's most certainly, if that's true, it's most certainly is not a question of conscious motivations. Now, of course, you might start talking about unconscious motivations and so on and so forth. Um, but the more that you, um, the more that you take seriously the surrealist claims, at least for certain examples of art, I think the, the, the less you are forced to say there must be some sort of conscious motivation. But yes, I mean, it does seem to me to be um, an important aspect of what we think of as an artist. And after all, even the Surrealists, they were very strongly motivated to show their stuff and to sell their stuff and to have it admired and so on and so forth. And um, you know, none of this has got anything to do with the um, sorts of computer systems I'm talking about. So yes, I think there are indeed um, great differences here. Um, but as I said, there's a lot of frustration on the part of um, of computer artists that so many people just aren't prepared even to consider their stuff, and particularly uh, when, if they find something aesthetically pleasing, once they discover that it was computer-generated, they dismiss it. And in fact, let me give you a musical example um, a man called David Cope, who is himself actually a composer, uh, but also, uh, and a professor of musicology, but also a computer scientist. And he, I think, has written what is the most interesting example of a musical program. Anyway, and his program comes up with, uh, it generates new musical structures, new, new musical compositions in the style of some well-known uh, composer. Or it can mix styles too. Well, to cut a long story short, um, he, he once um, announced he was going to have a, a concert um, of his music, of the computer's music. Um, it was going to be played by human musicians um, but the score had been had been generated by the program. A review of this concert was written by some the music critic of the local newspaper, who said, "You know, it was an absolute uh, outrage." Da, da 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 da. And funnily enough, the review was published two weeks before the concert, <coughs> and um, in the review. The critic has said, I have no intention of going to this concert. The very notion is an absolute outrage. I will not go to this concert. And when Coke rang him up and invited him, he said, you know, come along, if, uh, you know, seat in the front row. He, he wouldn't go. He just would not consider it. Um, so, and in fact, um, partly, for, partly because that sort of reaction David Coke found was so common, right, um, and partly because even when people were prepared to come to the concert, and even when they were prepared to recommend to their friends that they go to another concert, you know, next month, um, as David Cope put it, people um, approached his, the scores as computer output, not as music. I mean, they weren't prepared 
to consider them as music. They thought of them as computer output, and he, as a composer, I mean, he wanted them regarded as music. He was perfectly happy for people to criticise them. In fact, he criticised them himself. In his books, he gives a lot of examples of infelicities, you know, which the thing produced, and, and, and says precisely why they happened and precisely what's wrong with them, right? Um, but he got so frustrated by those two things, those, uh, those two reactions, uh, that he ended up um, destroying um, all the work which he had been doing for 20, 25 years and which he'd been made available um, to other people. And, he, and, and now he's working on a, a, a new program, obviously very closely related, but trying only to um, produce music in his own style, which is actually what he had wanted to do in the first place. But he had found it was too difficult. He didn't understand his own style well enough to be able to do it. And so he went to trying to, and try very successfully, to write a program that would um, compose in the stars of many other different people. And now um, he feels, you know, that he's in a position to um, to write, if you like, his own music, music in his own style with the program. I mean, how far he regards it as being successful, I don't know, because the change has relatively recently been made, so I don't know. But he has made that motivational change. One final, one final quick question and answer. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, very interesting. Uh, I was trained as an engineer and have always had an interest in... Can you speak up, please? I was trained as an engineer. I'm now retired and have always had an interest in physics and computing, or physics as used to be called natural philosophy. Um, the uh, definitions of, of art, um, which this lecture makes me think of, um, is... Presumably, art across the board... I'm posing some questions to you, really. Art across the board um, has to be for human consumption, perhaps, because we have the word, so it's humans who are consuming it. But does that mean that a human actually had to produce it? Because there are other forms of art from animals and so on. That's sort of one question. Is, does it have to be produced by a human being to be art? And the other is, in, in computing, it seems to me that there are two styles of computing art, perhaps. One is the machinery style, like a knitting machine producing beautiful objects. And the other is the computer, which seems to have enough skill or recognition to have, is, is cognitive the right word, the creative role, um, and, and that seems to be a little bit unclear, but not a reason for rejecting it as a form of art, if we want to look at it. Um. Well, I mean, personally, I wouldn't want to... This relates to the question the gentleman asked over here. I wouldn't want to say that animals produce art. I mean, if you're thinking of bowerbirds, are you, for example? I mean, I don't know what examples you're thinking of, but I wouldn't want to say that even a beautiful, or, for, or a wonderful example, which is on one of Richard Attenborough's, um, David Attenborough's um, programs recently, of the, the puffer fish. And the, yeah. Well, you see, I wouldn't want to call that art. 
I don't because I think art it, it it's a notion. Actually, I don't know that um, I would want to say that the cave paintings art actually I think it's a very historically situated notion and certainly the notion of an artist you know our notion of the individual artist is um, really comes from the early modern period doesn't it I mean before then you had people doing wonderful things making wonderful things like you know the the gothic cathedrals and so on or, or religious icons um, which now we regard as art, but of course they were doing it for very, very different purposes. And um, so, so in, in the concept of art that we've got now, it's you know so heavily imbued with all, with all these historical cultural prejudices and romanticism on the top of that, and now, of course, the commodification and the marketing of art and all that sort of thing. Um, and if that is your notion of art, then obviously animals aren't artists. Um, as for the knitting machine example, well, I would have thought, I mean, I may be wrong here. I'd be very interested to know if anybody knows if this is not the case. I would have thought that knitting, when knitting machines are used, um, some human designer decides on the pattern the pattern in terms of on the one hand the shape of the garment and on the other hand the colouring and pattern if any on the garment um, and feeds those instructions in to the knitting machine and then the knitting machine just goes ahead and does it there's nothing generative about it in the sense that the knitting machine comes up with a new design which the person concerned hadn't thought of. I imagine it's also true, and as I say, I'd be very interested to know if it's not, I imagine it's also true that at the moment there is no uh, use of a knitting machine such that the designer can say to the machine, in effect, can say to the machine, um, do me 20 different versions of a fair isle jumper. Now, of course, if the thing has, in the past, has actually been told how to knit 20 different fair isle jumpers and they've been labelled like that, and then if the, so if the, the knitting machine goes to pick them up... That's not interesting. I'm not talking about repeating things it's done before. I'm talking about getting the general sense of the style of a fair isle jumper and coming up with 20 different versions, right? Um, that would be generativity. That would be creativity of the form that I call exploratory creativity. That would be like the Prairie House example, right? Um, and I mean, it's not in principle impossible. I, I just um, don't know that anybody's done it. Although it's interesting, I mean, there are, there are some uh, people, a small number of people, who are artists, or who are textile artists, who consider themselves as textile artists, and are considered by other people as textile artists, but who actually use knitting to do it. There's one, oh, very famous one. He's uh, a Scandinavian forget his name, 
uh, he does beautiful stuff, very, very interesting, visually interesting stuff, and he does it with knitting. Now, he is the sort of person who might be interested in exploring you know, that question that, that you raise. But again, he might not, because he might be so protective of of his position as an artist and his claim to be an artist, which, after all, many people, I mean, would have a, um, a resistance to regarding knitting as having anything to do with art. Okay. Um, they've got enough trouble with human beings already without um, coming up with uh, resistance to the notion of computer art. But if he wasn't held back for those sorts of reasons, that sort of person might be interested to explore that sort of thing and, and to do that sort of thing. But I don't think you would do it. I don't think it's you know being done um, by clothing manufacturers in general. I mean, they just shove the rules in and the thing does what it's told, which isn't what you were talking about. <laughs> I can't hear you. A computer either being a piece of machinery, a tool, or more than that, having its creative... Well, it depends what you mean by a tool. I mean, certainly for David Hockney, the computer is just a tool. It's of no philosophical interest whatsoever. Right? I mean, it may enable him to do things he couldn't have done before, which um, you think are very valuable. That's another issue. But it, it is just a tool. Now, in the case of the sorts of generative programs that I've been talking about, I think it's, it's, it's a bit different because, yes, you can say that for the artist there are tools which he uses to generate a whole range of certain type of image which he regards as aesthetically valuable. But I think that's stretching it a bit because they, the, the program and in, in the running of the program is, uh, if you like, providing something, providing a functionality which is independent of the direct hands-on uh, intervention from the artist. It's dependent on the program he wrote, of course, even if it's an evolutionary program. Um, but it isn't, it isn't coming up with a specific result which the human artist wanted it to come up with, which is what a tool you know, is normally doing, and certainly what Photoshop in the hands of David Hockney is doing. So I think they're more than tools. They're not quite artists, but they're more than tools. Right, I'd like to um, thank Margaret again for a very interesting talk and to thank all of you for taking the time to be here tonight.